Hi, and welcome to Sisters Love Podcast. My name is Shelly. And my name is Shannon. We are sisters and we talk about what we love to watch, love to learn, love to love, love to read. Well, you get the idea. we're going to talk about New Year's movies. We consider a movie to be a New Year's movie if a New Year's celebration occurs during the course of the film. Our selections today feature the holiday in various ways, each one being unique. Much like our Christmas movie philosophy, New Year's doesn't have to be the central plot point in the movies we selected. That said, it's an annual excuse for a party. And that theme continues throughout these films. Our first selection is Diner, the 1982 movie written and directed by Barry Levinson, who went on to direct The Natural, Good Morning Vietnam, and Rain Man. This was his first feature, and he knocked it out of the park with the cast. We have Steve Gutenberg as Eddie, Mickey Rourke as Boogie, Kevin Bacon as Fenwick, Daniel Stern as Shrevey, and Paul Reiser as Modell. Ellen Barkett also has a small but important role as Shrevey's wife and Boogie's ex, Beth. The film follows the boys, and I do mean overgrown boys, around as Eddie's New Year's Eve wedding draws near. The diner in question is Fells Point Diner, the regular meeting place for the guys. Billy, played by Tim Daly, comes home for the wedding to discover his best friend Barbara is pregnant after their one-night stand. He wants to marry her, but she refuses, saying that he's confusing friendship with love. Considering how little friendship the other men have with the women in their lives, I'm not sure Billy isn't onto something. I agree that the cast was absolutely amazing, but I didn't like this movie. There was not a single character that I was rooting for. All of the male characters were just such giant jerks with zero redeeming qualities, and the women were written as weak and submissive. I disliked every single character in the film, and I'm pretty sure that has never happened before. I have strange feelings about this movie. On one hand, the acting is excellent, and I love the naturalistic dialogue. The characters talk the way people actually do, which is so rare in a film. Wikipedia says that Levinson encouraged the characters to improvise, and that really shows. And I forgot what amazing leading man energy Mickey Rourke had back in the day. That said, Billy was the only male character I could tolerate. The rest were immature misogynists of the highest order. Boogie tries to sleep with a woman as part of a bet to get out of a gambling debt. Shrevey says that he has nothing to say to bet, now that they aren't, quote, sex planning or marriage planning. Kevin Bacon is perhaps the most punchable of all as a trust fund twit with family problems. And it's Kevin Bacon. I usually love him. It's odd because I first saw this movie about 20 years ago and I remember thinking it was great. It is great in terms of filmmaking. I just didn't enjoy it on second viewing. I think it really shows its age 
watching it in a time where lots of husbands are genuinely great. Don't get me wrong, I realize lots of men still have locker room talk, but this movie is set in the 1950s, and all the characters clearly fall into filmmaking stereotypical roles that you'd expect. The movie partially revolves around the upcoming nuptials of Eddie scheduled for New Year's. He has prepared a quiz about football that his fiance must pass or he is going to call off the wedding. A move that everyone seems to find perfectly reasonable? It was truly like watching an alternate universe at times. One that I wanted to destroy with fire. (laughs) I thought that was so strange too. Not a single person said this was insane. Not even her mom. An exotic dancer has the wisest line in the whole movie. After Eddie's bachelor party, Eddie and Billy take her to the diner for dinner. She tells them they should come out more often. Eddie says he can't because he's getting married. She asks Billy if he's married and he says that no, he's just in love. Does the girl know she said? Yes, I told her. Didn't you show her? Thanks for bringing some wisdom to the proceedings, lady. Next, we have the original Ocean's Eleven from 1960, featuring the Rat Pack. Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, Angie Dickinson, Joey Bishop, and Frank Sinatra as Danny Ocean. The movie is about a group of 11 former World War II compatriots planning and executing a heist on New Year's of multiple casinos in Las Vegas. This movie was surprisingly bad. Most of you are probably familiar with the 2001 remake featuring Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, Matt Damon, Elliot Gould, and George Clooney as Danny Ocean. The remake was superior in literally every way. From the acting, to the writing, cinematography, plot, and execution, everything was so much better. And it isn't even that the remake was so perfect, which it was, it was that the original was so bad. For me, the remake serves instead as a replacement, making the original completely irrelevant. First, I love the Rat Pack. They are smooth as silk. And any movie that includes a singing Sammy Davis Jr. has something for me. But that said, I agree with you. The movie was released in 1960, but the dialogue sounds so artificial and so much older. It's really odd and jarring. It almost reminded me of a film noir where the dialogue is supposed to sound that way, except I don't think it was on purpose. I feel like the 2001 version was more of an homage than a remake in that, as you said, they changed up everything and made it so much better. Our next entry is Snowpiercer, the 2013 science fiction film directed by Bong Joon-ho and adapted from a French graphic novel. Bong Joon-ho is one of my favorite contemporary directors, and this was his first English language film. He later went on to write and direct Parasite, which won the Oscar for Best Picture and Best Director, a first for a foreign language film, and is the best movie I've seen in at least a decade. His movies The Host, Okja, and Thirst are also great, 
and the rest of his films are definitely on my list to watch. Bong Joon-ho is a masterful artist. His movies are always so unique, disturbing, and expertly executed. I have absolutely loved everything I have ever watched of his, and everything I haven't watched is also on my must-watch list. Snowpiercer takes place in the future, where a scientific experiment to reverse the effects of global warming goes very, very wrong and plunges the world into a deadly ice age. The only survivors are the people on board the train Snowpiercer, where it's a giant understatement to say that a caste system exists of the extreme haves, those at the front of the train, and the extreme have-nots, those at the tail of the train. It stars Chris Evans as Curtis, who helps lead a revolution against the front of the train residents, Tilda Swinton in very prominent dentures as Mason, who works to keep society segregated and quell dissent in often brutal and cruel ways, and Song Kang Ho, a security expert, Namgoon Minsu. Kang Ho stars in several of Bong Joon-ho's films, including Parasite, which also addresses issues of class inequality. The train's path takes one full year to complete, and the revolution led by Curtis happens over New Year's, which they celebrate upon each passing of the Yekaterina Bridge. Bong Joon-ho famously battled with Harvey Weinstein over the U.S. version of this movie. Weinstein wanted to go with his cut, which reduced the film by around 26 minutes. Obviously, the director wanted his cut to remain intact. Ultimately, Bong won after a failed screening of Weinstein's version. I thoroughly enjoyed this victory on Bong's behalf, considering what a complete pig Weinstein is as a person. Also, how arrogant to think he could improve on anything Bong creates. Weinstein has the same energy as the male characters in Diner, just more so. I couldn't agree more, and I love this story. The movie is a straight-up masterpiece. What it lacks in realism, it makes up for in character development, topical storytelling, and killer fight scenes. No pun intended. The tight quarters and interesting lighting made them absolutely thrilling to watch. I completely agree. I highly recommend this film. It is so freaking good. Next, we have The Poseidon Adventure, released in 1972. I added this one to the list for the episode. I remembered this movie from my youth. I thought the concept of an overturned cruise ship and working through how to escape was fascinating as a child. The movie follows a cruise ship that is caught in a tsunami off the coast of Greece during their New Year's party. Due to extra cargo held high in the ship and a broken water pump in the ballast, the ship completely flips over after being hit by the monstrous wave shortly after the stroke of midnight. A small group of survivors then ventures away from the ballroom for a path to the engine room where the hull is its thinnest. Knowledge held by an inquiring young boy that has made friends with various ship employees, including the captain and an engineer. The ragtag group is led by a demanding and strong-willed Reverend Scott, played by Gene Hackman. The movie also features Ernest Borgnine, Red Buttons, Shelley Winters, and Roddy McDowell. I started off thinking this movie was terrible, but I admit it won me over. 
The cast was ridiculously good and filled with award-winning actors. I especially loved Shelley Winters, but everyone was excellent and grounded the over-the-top plot. It is comfort watching of a variety. You know the basic beats of the story and just get to watch it unfold. That said, more main characters died than often do in these types of films, and some of the deaths were quite sad. The parts of this movie I remembered, the problem-solving and adventure parts, I still loved. But there is definitely an element of the ridiculous in the film. That being said, I enjoyed it, and I'm glad we revisited it for this episode. Next, we have Trading Places. This could easily have made it onto our Christmas episode of Unpopular Opinions, since Dan Aykroyd is literally dressed as the shabbiest of Santas at the Duke office Christmas party at one point. But that's the case with many holiday movies. Christmas and New Year's are so close together that frequently both are featured in a film. We chose this for our New Year's episode because some of the most pivotal scenes, and most cringeworthy ones, take place on a train at New Year's where the four major cast members are dressed up in wild costumes. But more on that later. The movie follows the Duke brothers, two very wealthy stockbrokers that own a firm. One of their top employees, Louis Winthorpe III, played by Ackroyd, is a stereotypical rich white male in the most humorous way possible. The brothers like to place bets with each other over all sorts of matters. Given their complete lack of interaction with the real world, they deem it appropriate to bet that if they took everything away from Winthorpe, they could make him a criminal. And if they gave everything to a man they deemed just a homeless thug, Billy Ray Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy, that they could make him a successful stockbroker. What is the prize for turning two people's lives completely upside down for entertainment? One dollar. Yep. On top of being very rich, they are also extremely cheap. In addition to a house and a servant, they offer Valentine an annual salary of $80,000 in 1984, which many people would rightfully consider a very high wage in 2020. That gives you a glimpse into just how wealthy the Duke brothers are, not to mention how many wages have stagnated for many people, but that's a different story. Okay, let's be real about some very unfortunate business that takes place in this movie that would not and should not stand today, including anti-gay slurs, Dan Aykroyd's blackface, and what we'll just call the gorilla plot. A good rule of thumb about blackface. If you're considering wearing it, don't. That's the only rule. Wikipedia says that, quote, In response to the 2020 George Floyd protests about racial inequality, Trading Places is one of 16 films that had a disclaimer added by British broadcaster Sky UK. The disclaimer read, This film has outdated attitudes, language, and cultural depictions which may cause offense today. That said, despite these cringeworthy and hurtful elements, the class and many of the racial issues still resonate. In fact, I'd say that that's true to an almost depressing point, but behind real social commentary are two extremely funny performances by Murphy and Aykroyd, and great supporting performances by the rest of the cast, including Jamie Lee Curtis. The end of this movie is also so satisfying. 
There's nothing quite like sticking it to the man. I agree that while this movie has some very problematic issues, the fact that the plot highlights the very issues it includes makes for a very interesting dynamic. They are pointing out issues with class and race, all the while using the same injustices for entertainment. This message would not be delivered the same way today, and I think that's a good thing. Also, while the ending is extremely satisfying, it is also confusing. Not the fact that they pulled one over on the Duke brothers, but how they did it. An article on NPR by Robert Smith does a very good job of explaining exactly what transpired. Winthorpe and Valentine steal the crop report from the Duke's PI and provide the Dukes with a false crop report stating that the yield will be lower than expected. Lower yield means higher prices due to scarcity. This is why the Dukes go all in on purchasing OJ shares as soon as the market opens. Meanwhile, Winthorpe and Valentine know that the crops are actually in a high yield position. So they wait until the price of OJ futures is driven up and then they sell contracts to promise to sell OJ at $1.42 per pound in April. Given that everyone thinks the price of OJ will be higher than $1.42 in April, they are mobbed with offers. Then the real crop report is announced. Everyone now realizes they made a false assumption based on the actions of the Duke's broker motivated by a false report. So now they must sell, sell, sell. Winthorpe and Valentine wait for the price of OJ futures to drop to 29 cents per pound, and then they start to buy contracts, allowing them to purchase OJ shares in April. The article summarizes, quote, In other words, Winthorpe and Valentine have contracts allowing them to buy millions of pounds of orange juice in April for 29 cents a pound and sell it for $1.42 a pound. They sold high and bought low. They're rich. The Dukes made the opposite bet and went broke. I am so thankful for this article because before reading this, I never understood what actually had happened. Lastly, we have When Harry Met Sally, released in 1989. This movie follows the love story of Harry, played by Billy Crystal, and Sally, played by Meg Ryan, over the course of more than a decade of rivalry, friendship, and finally, lovers. It also features Carrie Fisher as Marie, Sally's best friend, and Bruno Kirby as Jess, Harry's best friend. You know that in general, I'm not a huge fan of romantic comedies, but this movie is, without a doubt, an exception to that rule. I love the framing device of having actual older couples talk about their relationships interspersed with the movie plot. The exchange that Harry and Sally have on their drive to New York from Chicago about why men and women can't be friends is a classic, as is the deli scene when Sally fakes an orgasm to prove to Harry that he wouldn't know the difference. Fun fact, the woman who says, I'll have what she's having after that scene is the director Rob Reiner's mother. That is too funny. The film is one of the few that makes me laugh out loud every time I see it. The whole baby fish mouth conversation from the Pictionary scene still makes an appearance at our gatherings on a semi-regular basis, as does Billy Crystal saying, you go out dancing, you do the white man's overbite. There is so much goodness and warmth in this movie. Both couples have a ton of chemistry, and I love seeing Carrie Fisher play to her sardonic strengths. 
This movie is still just so good. I never thought of Billy Crystal as a romantic lead, but this movie proved me wrong. The movie includes two New Year's celebrations, one when Harry and Sally are just friends, and one when they finally realize how they feel about each other, with Harry professing, I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. This scene makes me tear up every single time I watch it. I love this movie so much. This one could also make it into our Christmas list. So you have two excuses to watch it every year. We hope you enjoyed our selection of New Year's movies. Please join us next week when we discuss movies focusing on new beginnings in honor of the new year, including Wild, Silver Linings Playbook, and Legally Blonde, in case you want to watch before you listen. We love suggestions, so don't hesitate to let us know if you have ideas for future episodes. Email us at contact at sistersLovePodcast.com. If you're enjoying our podcast, please do us a huge favor and give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. The Sisters Love Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Shelley Clark and Shannon Kelly. That's us. us. Music by Sean Mullins. We can't wait to talk to you next time. Until then, keep finding things you love especially each other.